dear friends who is joining us officially in membership this morning. So Rodney Baker, if you would come uh, on up here, uh, we're going to officially receive you into uh, full uh, membership here in, uh, in Chillicothe Bible Church. So you'd stand up next to the mic. Uh, you'll get to hear Rodney's story here uh, in weeks to come. It is an amazing story of God's grace and mercy to him. But for today, first of all, do you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and do you desire above all else to live for him? If so, signify by saying, I do. I do. Do you declare your intention to live in submission to the doctrine of the church as expressed in its confession of faith and in obedience to its membership covenant? If so, signify by saying, I do. I do. Do you promise to support this congregation with your prayers, with your faithful attendance at its services, by your encouragement of our members, the willing use of your gifts and talents in its ministry, and the giving of your means as God prospers you? If so, signify by saying, I do. I do. Well, then upon your good confession and your agreement with these vows, I want to give you a, a word from the Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brother Rodney and for the privilege I have enjoyed over the last few years of getting to know him and seeing the transformation that you have brought and are bringing into his life. Uh, Father, from eternity past, uh, you had declared him to be uh, written in the Lamb's book of life. And you sent Christ for him. And you have brought him into this fellowship that we might be blessed by him and that he might bless us uh, with his spiritual gifts and with his encouragement and his prayers and his giftedness, and that we might uh, likewise uh, bless him with all of ours, and that we might grow up together into him who is the head and to Christ. And so, Father, we uh, are so excited to have him be part officially of uh, Chillicothe Bible Church, and we ask that in every way you would lead and bless and transform his life even more that we might all look like Christ together as we stand at the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Rodney, if you would join me at the back when, when uh, the service is over, that would be great, man. We want to we all welcome you. Uh, also, today, don't put up all the chairs. Those of us who are going to stay and pack and eat need some of those to sit in while we enjoy that potluck. Um, well, this morning we're going to be looking at another one of Jesus' miracles and about the reaction of the Jewish leaders to it when they heard about it. The miracle itself is amazing, but Jesus does it in a completely understated way. The reaction that you see from the religious leaders is also amazing, but in a very different and negative way, because it reveals the heart of people more concerned about keeping God's rules than about being in relationship with God himself, even as he stands before them. And so, as always, we're going to need the Holy Spirit 
to open our eyes and ears and minds and hearts to God's Word. So I want to pray and then read you this story. God, our Heavenly Father, we, we do ask that You would uh, open our eyes that we might see the beauty of Jesus in this text and that we might walk in His ways and according to His calling. And we pray, Father, for Your Spirit's empowerment as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. After this, this is John chapter 5, beginning verse 1. We're going to look all the way through verse 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Uh, if you go to the old city of Jerusalem, uh, I, I'm sure if you ask Rick and Cindy, they will show you photos. Uh, but if you go to the old city of Jerusalem, you can see the ruins of the pool that John describes. Uh, the ruins of the five co covered porticos are still there, along with the remains of the pool itself, although it no longer holds any water. Uh, in Jesus' day, there was a spring that fed the pool, and at certain times of the year... As that spring would kick on, it would make the water bubble up. And it was believed in those days that it wasn't bubbles from an underground spring, that it was actually an angel that was stirring the water. And that therefore, and the idea was that whoever got in first, well, they were going to be healed of whatever they had. And in fact, um, uh, some of you may have verse 3 uh, in your Bible. I think it's verse 3 um, in your Bible that actually, oh, it's, I'm sorry, it's verse 4. Yeah. Uh, it's, that actually describes this belief. By the way, verse 4 is not, is not Bible. Okay? It's not present in the earliest manuscripts we have of John. And therefore, it's very likely not original to the text. What it probably is, is a record that somebody had written off to the side 
of what was the belief at the time that later as it got recopied by hand, got incorporated into the text. But this is the belief at the time is that an angel is stirring up the water. And that whoever gets in first is going to be healed. Uh, during one of the Jewish feasts, Jesus comes to this pool and he finds a man there who has been lame for 38 years. He can't walk. And we don't know exactly what happened to him because uh, the, the text does not tell us, but Jesus implies in verse 14 that it's a result of the man's sin somehow. Does that mean, by the way, that every sickness or illness is, is tied to our own personal sin? No. But are there consequences to sin, some of which are physical? Yes. And, and in this case, it seems that this man's disability, whatever the cause was, was as a result of this guy's sin. He had consequently lost his ability to walk, and he's suffering here, in other words, because he deserves it. He had engaged in sin, and it had borne this as fruit, and now he has been sitting here for 38 years, unable to walk, because he is paying the consequences in his body of his sin. And Jesus picks out this one guy. The text tells us there are hordes of people under all of these five roofed colonnades. And Jesus goes and finds this guy. The guy who's disabled, not because he was born that way, not because of an accident, not because of uh, just you know the vicissitudes of life, but because he deserves it. He deserves what has come upon him. It was the natural consequence of whatever he had done. Jesus seeks out that guy, the undeserving guy, and comes up to him. And he asks him a very penetrating question. Look at the text. Do you want to be healed? Now you would think that's a dumb question, right? I mean, I, I mean, obviously I've been laying here for 38 years. Obviously I want to be healed. But you know what I found out? I've been a pastor now for about 17 years. And there are sometimes people that you meet who get very comfortable in their misery. And, and they don't really want to be healed. Not really. Not if being healed would mean I would have to do something different with my life. Right? There are two kinds of people who come to counseling as an example. One kind of person is the person who is desperate for any solution and they will take whatever counsel you give them and follow it. And the other kind is the person who really doesn't want to be healed. What they want is for someone to tell them that what they have already decided to do is the right thing. And so Jesus is asking this guy a very penetrating question. Do you want to be healed? You know, sometimes an invalid, particularly in Middle Eastern culture uh, of that day, would have a pretty good living, actually, because people would be very generous. 
But this guy, if he got healed, would have to get a job. He'd have to do something with his life. And one of the things that's often true when you confront somebody in a difficult situation who you ask, do you want to be healed? Sometimes they will start to offer excuses. And that's, I think, what this guy does. He says, well, sir, I have nobody to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another person steps down before me. And he's just going on to explain why he hasn't been healed. But he never actually answers Jesus' question. You know, my wife and I sometimes have a, have a conversation back and forth. Um, she is the bottom line person in my house, right? I am the detail person. I am the storyteller in our house. You may have noticed that I like to, to talk and I like to tell stories, right? Um, and she's like, so I ask you, a, you know, she'll ask me a question and I'll start explaining, right? She's like, just tell me yes or no. <laughs> and I'm like, but there's backstory. And she's like, I don't care. You can fill that in later. Give me the yes or no, right? Jesus' question is a yes or no question. And this guy backs up the truck with the backstory. Right? I, I relate to this guy. Okay, he never says, though, yes, I want to get well. But here's what's the most amazing about what Jesus does next. He heals him instantly and without demanding the guy do anything first. He doesn't ask him to do anything first. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the text says that once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now, uh, I was reading this week a commentary by a couple of pastors, Matt Carter and Josh Redberg are their names. And in their commentary, they point out four things about this guy's healing that are significant. First, it's not a fake healing. In other words, this isn't like some sideshow carnival trick that Jesus does where this guy was like a plant down at the pool and we're going to declare this man healed and he could walk the whole time. It's not fake. This guy's really been crippled for 38 years. And he's instantly healed. And second, it's not a faith healing. In other words, this guy's faith in Jesus had absolutely nothing to do with it. I don't know if you watch, and I don't recommend this, but every now and then, you know, I, I'll be flipping channels and I'll run across, you know, religious television which mo most of that is worse than the regular stuff. And you'll have some guy on there, you know, Benny Hinn or some other heretical person. And, um, and, and Benny will always say, he always leaves himself an out, right? Well, if you weren't healed, well, then you just didn't have the faith to be healed. Well, that's convenient, right? Well, you just didn't believe hard enough, that's not what Jesus says. It's in spite of the guy's excuse making, in spite of the fact that this guy uh, is suffering the consequences of sin, Jesus doesn't demand faith first. He simply heals the guy. 
And third, it's a free healing. Jesus healed him, no strings attached. He didn't say, by the way, if you send in your faith promise gift, then you might perhaps potentially be healed. He didn't do that. It's free. And finally, it's a full healing. You know, I mean, sometimes in the medical field, you know, that we, we're able to do some amazing things. People, people um, you know, have illnesses or they have difficulties. You know, like we're watching little Annalise. Um, I don't know how many of you are, are friends um, of, of hers where you can watch her go through physical therapy and she, after meningitis now she is learning how to rewalk, right? Her, her, her mom and dad, Casey and Carrie, would give anything for full, complete, instantaneous healing where all of a sudden she knows how to walk again and everything works. But in reality, when you have a disease like that, your muscles atrophy, your nerves quit working, and you have to kind of retrain your body to function. But when Jesus heals, there's none of that. It's not a six-month lead-in to this guy being able to walk. He's able to walk instantly. His muscles, his nerves, his muscle memory that enables him to walk is all immediately restored. Fully and completely. It's an amazing thing. And I wish that's where the story ended. But it's not. Some of the local Jewish leaders, they see this man carrying his mat and they accuse him of violating the Sabbath. Now let me just talk to you about that for a minute. The Sabbath law said that you could not work on the Sabbath. And the point of that was to set aside one day every week to honor God with worship and rest. And the law said, do no regular work. Meaning, whatever you did for a job through the week, you were not supposed to do. So if you were a blacksmith, the blacksmith shop is closed every week, one day a week. If you were a teacher, the, black, you know, the, the teaching uh, that you're doing ceases at least one day a week that you can honor God, that you can rest. And the idea was that, you know, all of us work. Why do we work? We don't work because, you know, most of us, even if we like it, we don't work because we like it, at least not entirely. We work because there is a paycheck at the end, and we are providing for our needs that way. But God said, don't work one day a week so that you can demonstrate and teach yourself at, down at this heart level that God is ultimately the person who takes care of you. And that if you don't work one day, if you don't work every day, in other words, that God is still capable of taking care of you even on that day that you rest. It was a reminder that God is ultimately the one who provides and protects and who watches over you, and that you don't have to do it on your own, that God is the one who supervises and superintends and takes care of your life. 
But by Jesus' day, it, wasn't, it had been transformed from a blessing that God gave to a burden that God laid on his people, at least in the minds of the religious leaders. And so the very simple pro, you know, prohibition, do no regular work on the Sabbath, was kind of transmogrified into 39 different categories of things you could not do on the Sabbath. So like as an example, you had to be careful where you spit. Because if you spit somewhere and then later somebody came along and scuffed that spit glob with their toe in the dirt, well then they would be cultivating the soil and they would be doing work. If you were a woman, you were not supposed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath because if you looked in the mirror, you might see a gray hair and might be tempted to pull it and that would be work. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? It's funny, but it's, it's ridiculous. And the idea was, well, we really, really, really want to obey God, so we're going to get very specific and define exactly what work is so that we don't violate it, right? It's kind of like the NFL with reference to what is a catch, right? You know, it's like, well, he has the ball, and he has to take two steps and make a football move. And, you know, what constitutes a football move? No one knows, right? But it all gets very legalistic, and we have to have cameras and official review. And then they call the guys in New York. And, you know, it's this, it's this kind of a ridiculous regulation that this has become. And so instead of a blessing, it's become a burden. And the point is this. At the bottom line, it isn't obvious that this healed man is breaking God's law, but he is violating the tradition of the religious leaders. And in doing that, they miss the miracle of God's grace. This guy has been a cripple for 38 years. And they are concerned about the fact that he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath, and they think that's a violation of God's law, even though his job was not mat carrying. And he didn't show up every week to be the mat, the mat hauler, right? That wasn't what he was doing. He was rejoicing in celebration of the fact that he would, had been healed and he was going to be able to take his bed back to his house and leave it. And they miss... God's grace to this man. Do you see how they miss it? They say, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. The man explains, look, the person who healed me told me to carry it. And they're like, well, he's a troublemaker. Let's go find out who that was. Hunt him down for encouraging people to violate the Sabbath. They missed it. They're on the hunt for whoever told this man to violate the Sabbath that way. They're fo so focused on finding the guy who broke their religious rule, they completely missed the magnificence of why. They don't run to Jesus to worship Him or to find out more about Him. And you would think that they would, since a man who has power to heal someone crippled instantaneously after 38 years... He is clearly a man who is filled with God's power. Amen? And God is who they claim to be worshiping, and yet, somehow a guy with a magnificent demonstration of God's power is seen in their eyes simply as a violator of their tradition and someone, therefore, to be persecuted. 
and they pursue him in order to persecute him rather than to become his disciple. Isn't it amazing, by the way, how legalism just blinds these guys? They live their lives as if the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave the world a list, that whosoever should keep to the list would have eternal life. That's how they're living. Is that true? No. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, who is present right there in their midst and demonstrating who He is by His power over this man's Infirmity. And yet, they miss it. They miss it. And when they confront Jesus, Jesus tells them why He's working on the Sabbath. He is working just like His Father is working. You may remember that the Bible says that God rested on the seventh day. Remember? Back to Genesis. And that is obviously true, but there's a certain sense in which God, nevertheless, is always working. Because it is by His power that the universe continues to hold together and exist. But evidently, God does not consider it work to do good to those whom He loves. And in the same way, Jesus does not consider it work to be doing good to this man whom He loves. And he says, I am just doing what my Father does. And by the way, if you are the king and you issue the law, are you subject to it? No. In the same way, if you are the Son of God, you are not subject to the law with reference to the Sabbath. So whether he violates it or doesn't is irrelevant. He's not under it anyway. He is the son of the king. By the way, John doesn't point this out explicitly, but this is the third of Jesus' messianic miracles. And it's meant to be a sign to them of his identity, proving he is the son of God in every sense. But their legalism blinds them to that spiritual truth. In fact, Jesus' answer my father is working and I am working is going to get him in real trouble. And we'll see that later on next time I'm with you. But for now, I want to turn your attention back to the man. We left him for just a second. This man's life is transformed. You know how we know? Where's Jesus find him? In the temple. What do you go to the temple to do? To worship God. This guy has been transformed from a sinner into a worshiper. And it's not just his legs that have been healed. And Jesus says, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing, may, nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, I've healed your body. So repent. That you might experience healing in your soul. And I really think the guy did repent. Because if you remember the details of this story, you'll see that none of the disciples are with him. So either this guy later became a disciple of Jesus and told the disciples what had happened to him. Or Jesus told the disciples about it directly because none of them were there. So how do we know? 
I think it's because the man became a disciple of Jesus. And he told John, let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what happened to me. Well, as we close out our time in God's Word this morning, let me draw our attention to a couple things in the text. Number one, God heals the undeserving. God heals the undeserving. You may have come here this morning as, a, as broken and as spiritually lame as the man in this story is physically. And it may have been for you 38 years of living in misery. It might have been longer that you've been sitting every day uh, up to a banquet of consequences that you have sown for yourself and you have been reaping every day since. And you know deep in your heart that if anybody deserves what they're getting, it's you. But I have such good news. Jesus came for the undeserving. He heals the undeserving. And what makes the gospel the best good news going in the world is that fact. That from God's perspective, every single person on this planet is undeserving. And yet God is loving and merciful and gracious and He gives us what we do not deserve and could not earn. God loves to heal the undeserving because all of us are. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that and I love this word, whosoever. In other words, anybody who believed in Him would not perish and would have instead eternal life. And if you are a believer today, aren't you glad that Jesus sought you out? Aren't you glad that Jesus came and found you in your, in your paralysis and healed you? Yeah. We have a lot to celebrate in that. And in fact, if that was the only thing that God ever did for me, was seek me out, forgive me of my sin, I would have ample reason to praise God for all eternity if He did nothing else. And yet He has done much more than that every day of my life since. And I have a lot to praise God for. Second thing, don't let legalism cause you to miss the miracle of grace in your life or somebody else's. Legalism is not, thank God, a very big problem, I don't think, in our church, but it can easily become one in an individual person. You know, because whenever we start replacing in our minds things that God intends to be a blessing to us with a burden we have to bear, then we're quick to recruit other people to join us in the misery. You notice that? And in doing that, we miss the wonderful joy and transforming power of God's grace to us and to other people. And God's love and His mercy to us is not based on our performance. It is in spite of these things. 
God's grace is merciful. It withholds what we richly deserve and gives what we do not. And it's possible to take any good thing that God intends as a blessing and turn it into a performance-based thing. I have to do this or God doesn't love me. And so you can take your Bible reading, and I encourage everybody to read their Bible, but um, in fact, get whatever Bible you can that you will read and obey. It will change your life, okay? But it's possible to take that and, and make a legalistic thing out of it where God loves me if I do this and He doesn't love me if I don't. Well, God loves me if I prayed enough today for enough people, for enough things. If I spend enough time at it, well, then God loves me then. And, and if, he, if I don't do that, if I don't check off all the boxes that I think I should, well, then God loves me less. If I haven't yelled at my wife this week, then I'm a good husband. And God loves me and He approves of me. But on Thursday we had a big fight and so I guess God doesn't love me as much this week. You understand what I'm saying? It's possible to take any kind of good thing that God intends to give us as a blessing and turn it into a legalistic checklist by which we evaluate how well we're performing before God and whether or not He loves us. But men and women, God loves us when we were sinners. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's not to say that, okay, well now you don't have to, you don't have to obey God in any way whatsoever. But it is to say that if He loved you then, He still loves you now. And it's not based on your performance, it's based on His character. And there's great freedom in that and great joy in that so that you want to obey God not be, not so that he will love you but because he already does amen amen let's pray father i pray that we would rejoice in the fact that though we were undeserving of god's grace and mercy and love it has been lavished on us in christ and Father, I, I pray that we would not turn the commands of, of Your Word and the, uh, the instruction we have in it into a legalistic, dry, dead religion instead of a relationship with the person who loved us first and who invites us to love Him in return with our obedience. My Father, may legalism never taxidermy our faith. My Father, we pray that we might uh, love Jesus more today as we remember the fact that He loved us back when we hated Him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.